This episode is dedicated to Tom Persh, my teammate, mentor, and friend. I enjoyed the journey with you, Tom. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. This is definitely one of my favorite episodes. Jeff and I sat down with Brian and Jason Korblick of Precision Parts Fast. They have implemented many concepts discussed on the podcast. Now they are winning more work than ever and have lots of questions on how to automate estimating even more through the use of paperless parts. This is a conversation Jeff has many times every day with customers. Rather than have a phone call that would essentially evaporate when it was over, we captured it for you. It is wide ranging. We get into pricing levers, part type categorization, shop rates, why complex parts can be the devil, throwing away your calculator, managing expectations, and even credit cards. These guys are smart, hungry, and growing fast. Beyond the particular content, you will overwhelmingly hear the mindset of success. If you have questions for us and would like to be on the podcast, let us know. We'd love the opportunity to try to help you and your shop and get the advice out to other shop owners who may be tackling the same issues you are. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Jason and Brian. Good to see you. Good to see you today. And Jeff, as always, good to see you. Pleasure to be here. Today, we're doing something a little different. And Jeff got an email from Jason and Brian regarding some specific questions on pricing. And we thought rather than keep that to ourselves, they were willing to open up and ask their questions in the podcast and make all this available to you, the listener, to try to, you know, really make American manufacturing more collaborative and share the common knowledge so that we can be a better competitor worldwide. And with that, I don't know, Jason or Brian, who wants to address this, but if you could give us some background on your shop, remind the audience what you guys are all about, and then specifically things that you might like to touch upon today. Let's start there. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for having us on the show again, Jay, and uh, mm-hmm. to you as always, Jeff. So to give you a little background, Precision Parts Fast, we're a, a very young shop. We started in 2021. My brother Brian and I are the only two employees. You know, we currently have a three-axis machining center, bringing in another one. And really our work is based around the prototype and low volume production markets, essentially trying to get engineers low volume parts fast and provide them a lot of flexibility in terms of what we're able to produce tolerance wise and finish wise. So when, you know, also my brother and I are not operators in terms of our experience prior to this. And have spent really my entire career around in working for OEMs and have had uh, a lot of exposure to pricing administration in, in that context, but have quickly realized it's very different in the job shop world. And so in essence, we were basically for a while pricing or marking up all aspects of our COGS, the same amount across the board, what we would prescribe a a certain gross margin percentage to any of those things. So whether it was machine time, labor, material cost, outside finishing, whatever it might be, we were employing the same markup. And that was Mm -hmm. in order to generate a a certain net operating profit range based on our goals. So what we found was, is that for maybe a lot of parts that other shops didn't want to take, we would get them, but a lot of parts that we would like to be able to take that, you know, are easier, more run of the mill, they don't hang up the shop. We weren't, you know, weren't getting them as much. And so we realized that, okay, we're not being very strategic with our pricing here and we need to get more strategic if we're going to win more business. Basically we were measuring, we wanted like, we thought, okay, a 30% win rate on quotes sounded pretty good based on some mentors we have in the industry, but it started sinking below that. So 
about a month ago, after listening to you and Jeff talk on your podcast about the colors of money and how you approached pricing so strategically at Rapid, uh, we were very intrigued by that, given the current problem we were trying to solve and have taken some, uh, some of those pointers that you all provided in that podcast. And we're starting to win more work because of it. But is you know, it, now, let me ask you, you're starting to win more work. Is it the type of work you want to win? Yes. Good. Yes. And so you know, a lot of that's just engineers that, you know, might, you know, they don't have anything complex. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it might, you know, it's just five thousand tolerances across the board, stuff like that, that, you know, a wide range of shops are able to accomplish. But, you know, we wanted to be able to mix in with, the more critical tolerance work that we've been trying to serve the needs of here, especially locally on low volume stuff. And so we started kind of implementing that. And what we wanted to talk to you about as it relates to that was get more, I guess, into the weeds on the colors of money and how you approach that. We've started to, based on the podcast, you know, if there's a high lot charge, for instance, for finishing, we and it's a low volume job, we might just pass that through a cost after listening to you talk. And you know, might get the job. And so anyway, now we're winning more work and it's like considerably more since you've made this adjustment. So, you know, also in your podcast, you talk about when, especially when you're getting started at Rapid, your fear of leaving money on the table. And, you know, that's something that Brian certainly knows keeps me up at night. And so we wanted to get some of the finer points and then understand how we can better use the capability of our paperless park system be able to just continue to get more strategic in our pricing methodologies. That is awesome. Thank you, Jason. And obviously this is enough meat for a whole podcast, which is the intent. I am going to give you the color of philosophy and we'll let Jeff give you more the implementation on the color of money as we go along. I'll start with, and if you're the listener, this will probably have aspects that are repeated, but perhaps I talk about them in a different way. And I would also say that the questions that they are putting forth are applicable to a shop the size of Rapid because we were always thinking of these when we were at the 50 million sales level. And if you are doing prototypes, if you're doing short run, it's perhaps not as applicable to higher volume production, with multiple deliveries and blanket orders, that sort of thing. But if you're quoting one-shot deals, this stuff is there day-to-day. And it's actually, for me, the fun of it is it's so dynamic because we've talked about the seasonality before and having these levers in your pricing engine so that you can adjust when times are slower, when you know sort of seasonality times are slower or it sneaks up on you. And on the flip side, when times get busy, if you don't manage your win rate, then you will overload your shop and cause all sorts of stress, disappoint customers. So implementing levers and being able to change those quickly, that's really one of the powers of having a pricing engine that is not very rigid. And I think that that's the beauty of what we had at Rapid and what we have created at paperless parts for our customers and allowing you to implement it in the way that works for your shop. So I'll pause there. Any thoughts, questions before I go on? Yeah. So kind of what you're getting at, Jay, is that the short run, you know, quick turn prototyping game has a lot more of those qualitative levers that, you know, go into essentially what the cost or price of a part is going to be, meaning that you know, Brian and Jason talked about the fear of leaving money on the table. So there's a lot more, I guess, areas to think about in that space when it comes to how much can I get out of this part? How much can I get out of this customer? You know, what do I want to win and not win? You're definitely, I think, regardless of volume, you want to have the levers there. You're changing them more often in the lower volumes. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So one of the things that I think is important is understanding your shop and the more complex jobs typically can have a higher profit margin, but they also have more risk. And 
maybe that's how you want to set up your shop. It wasn't how I wanted to set up Rapid, but there were high complexity parts that we sort of had to do or we would do for the right price. And at the same time, if somebody sent me a package of a dozen plus or minus five simple aluminum parts, two or three setups, boom, 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 they just flew through the shop. I was willing to eat a little bit on what what you would, and I'll say eat in quotes because you're so efficient. You don't capture that really in your quoting and, and you make really good profit margin on it, but it wouldn't look like that from necessarily from how you quote. You just, as a shop owner or an estimator, you just intuitively know you're going to make money on these parts because they're going to fly through the shop and you could give them to almost anybody as opposed to on the complex part, some of your more skilled machinists who have specialized knowledge perhaps of machining centers or, you know, in sheet metal, we had a couple guys who knew how to use the power roller. And that was a really high <laughs> shop rate work center because there were only two guys who could do that. So I, I don't want to have this strictly for machining. But to give you a real easy example, we categorize parts in machining into one of three categories and in sheet metal in one of five categories. The machining, we'll, we'll talk about that because it is perhaps simpler to explain. We had category one, we'll call them easy parts. Category two were medium complexity and medium complexity might be, I think anything say stainless, you might want to put into, and I should step back. It's your shop. Stainless, you might be bread and butter parts for you. For rapid, we would do stainless, but not everybody could make those parts. So we would put those in the medium complexity category. There might be over X number of setups you put in that if you are putting it on a fourth axis. So you you create the rules that, and I think a good way to look at it is anybody in the shop can make a category one, a, an easy part. And the medium complexity, not everyone can make it. You may not be able to put it into every machining center. Perhaps there's an EDM outside operation or a heat treat, th things that are a little bit out of the norm, but not there's not a lot of risk with them. And that's perhaps a good way to quantify the difference between a medium and, and complex part is there's not a lot of risk. It may take a little bit of expertise, but you are pretty sure you can make the parts and ship them without having to remake them or out having to call the customer and ask for an exception. And then you have the complex parts and those may be some weird material it may be the number of machining hours involved if you if, if you're starting for example with a 10 by 10 by 10 chunk of aluminum that's an expensive piece of material there's a lot of hours it may be easy machining but if you mess that up you're eating a lot to remake that part so all sorts of different considerations and every shop probably look back and go, God, these are the ones that bit me in the ass. There's probably a general category of those or general categories. <laughs> those are indicators of how you might want to classify. And it doesn't have to be three. You could have two separate groups or you could have even five for machining, whatever you want to do. Maybe turn parts, you have a, a couple categories for those. So I'll again, pause any questions on that before I, I'm going to get into a little more detail. Yeah, no, I think that's right on. I mean, we're dealing with a 10 by 10 piece of plate right now that's uh, we definitely are not making money on it. So it's there's something where there's too much risk and we priced it too low. And we're on the fringe of having to give the customer disappointing news after they paid expedite fees. And so, yeah, I think that's definitely what we're trying to manage. And I think, you know, since we listened to your podcast and you touched on some of this stuff, we've started to implement a three-tier system in terms of how we're calculating the labor rate by part. And so it's like, given the labor rates for machinists in this market, albeit we don't have employees yet, we're doing the machining, we're, you know, we're not basing that off of what we want to be paid or whatever it is. It's okay. You know, a low-level machinist in the Denver market makes this, a high-level mm -hmm. This is what you pay them. And then in the middle for medium parts, maybe that's that person. And so that's kind of how we've started to approach it. That's one aspect of it, labor, you know? And so I'd be curious to know, and this may be where you're headed, is how you compartmentalize some of those cost factors 
as they contribute to those kind of gross three-tier shot grades. Yeah, before I get to the cost, I want to talk about the shop rates. Let's go there first. And I'm going to throw out some numbers that are absurd for a shop rate. But what I learned is you never touch your times if you want your schedules to be accurate. And I created pricing engines. I built it from the bottom up and said, okay, the standard setup is 15 minutes and this shop rate, you know, we, we should be making pick a number, $80 an hour, $100 an hour. And, and you'd add it all up and you'd come up with a price that was twice what you knew you could sell it for and make money and, you know, what the, the customer's not going to pay that price. So the top-down approach is basically, this is what the market will bear. I know I can sell it for this and make a profit. And what we did is we adjusted our shop rates to get to the top-down number. And there's a lot of I think the approach that you can use is to grab 10 or 20 parts and you try each of those in your pricing engine. And if one of them doesn't work, you want to figure out how you can adjust your pricing engine and make that work without blowing up all the other ones. And that's just a lot of finesse and it, it takes time. And over time, you, you sort of dial it in or, or what I call a, a, you're always spiraling in. You're spiraling in, you're getting tighter and tighter, but you never quite reach the circle because you can always zoom in on it. So that said, I think roughly we had a $250 hour shop rate for easy parts. That was not our cost and that's not what we were making, but that's what the, without adjusting the times is, we'll say what the pricing engine told us the shop rate had to be. And then medium complexity parts, we were maybe at $350. By the end, we started out maybe at $500, $600 for complex parts. We did not want to make many of those. I think we were probably up at like $900 an hour. And we actually made money on those. And you could say, oh my God, we're making all this money on the complex parts. I should just do complex parts. Well, again, you don't have the, the right people to do it. You don't have the right machines. It's, it's, it, you, it's an easy way to blow up your shop. But when we did do it, I wanted to get paid the right money. And it was typically somebody who really had a time sensitive part, or it was part of a package that they wanted to give the whole package to somebody. And we said, well, fine, we'll do that. We'd prefer you give that part to someone else, but we'll do it. And it's probably some of the parts that you're seeing that you're not winning the easy stuff and you're getting the ugly parts, the dogs. So we charged a really high rate. And this is one of the things, Jeff, that you can talk about the reporting aspect, but we, and it may not be paperless as reporting, it depends how you're using paperless, but we would run a report every day and you can look at it in two ways and it's probably worth because reports are easy to run you can look at the percentage of dollars for each of those categories that you've decided and then i think it's better to look at the number of hours in each category that you've decided and let's say you don't want to ever make more than have in your shop more than five percent of complex parts then you have to manage that shop rate so you don't win more than that. And I know we learned from experience, if you didn't manage that shop rate, you got whacked. You All of a sudden you've got 10, 12%, and that really messed up the lead times in the shop. So the Jeff, maybe you can comment on reporting both from an ERP system and paperless parts, if you're placing your orders through the system and how that might be implemented. Totally. On the paperless side of the house, running a report of that nature would be pretty straightforward. I imagine as like you're, you're moving through your quote and quote items, you know, part of that step is going to be identifying, you know, is this a, an easy, medium or complex part? And then maybe in that process, that's communicating with your shop rate and adjusting it accordingly. So you don't have to do it by hand. Um, but forget about that for now. Just on a sheer reporting side, we'll be able to count up you know, the number of quote items classified into each one of those categories, sum up the respective costs, times, et cetera. And you'd be able to report on that on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And this is bringing me back to something that we talked about on a last call, Jay, or a mm -hmm. couple of calls ago with A-B testing. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. So maybe you don't want to dive in and go try out this new approach full fledged, but you want to run a test where, you know, you're, you're thinking this way on half of your inbound RFQs and you're kind of comparing the A group, which is what you're doing before to the B group to, you know, what you're, what you're trying out or what you're trying to do and seeing what the results of that are. So that can be a good way to, you know, level it up in terms of reporting and analysis. Yeah, that's, that's, sounds like a great idea. Yeah, we have, that's kind of been wholesale kind of, you know, as I explained before, not very strategic, treating every customer the same in that regard. And, you know, I thinking off the top of my head, I mean, there's definitely customers that we have that we could try, you know, you know, we're more willing to take some risk with and experimentation, I guess you could say. So, yeah. The other is the, if, if you have strong sales and marketing efforts and either or, and you're getting enough flow of new customers in that you're pretty confident that if you blow up a new customer by quoting some crazy number that they they never want to consider you again, but you know that the next week you're going to have X number of new customers come in or, or the following month or whatever. So you can try these strategies out, but if you have the fear of there's not that many new customers and you got to win the business, then you really are probably more limited in your ability to try these different pricing scenarios. Mm-hmm. That's one situation we're in right now. Jay is a, you know, is a relatively young shop launched in the summer of last year. So we're just trying to build our customer portfolio, especially and without, you know, because of our pricing algorithms, as Jason talked about and lack of and not having them, you know, strategize as much as we would like, even that like limited customer base at first, we're not winning as much as we'd like, but there is a case now where we're starting to get so busy because of adjusting those pricing algorithms and the way that we knew how to adjust them that we are potentially getting like there are times when we're overloaded and it's and and but yeah there is there's definitely hesitancy there to try that just because we're nervous we're not going to get enough new customers sure I mean, not enough people know about us yet so yeah it's a balancing act but i say that as a reminder that we were always selling. We were always marketing, even when times were good, because it became like a muscle that you didn't have to flex occasionally. You were always flexing it. And I remember in the downturn of 08, 09, 10 there, we had to reduce our costs. Well, we had to reduce our cost as well, but we had to reduce our prices to win the business. And but we were always still getting new customers in. And here's something as well, as an aside, I don't think we're we're in a, a place where we're going to have a recession where we're going to have to really be more fine-tuned on quoting. But one of the things that observation light bulb went off to me one time was the customers don't know that you're slow, right? You're sitting there going, I got to win this job and I need to cut the price 20% to win the job, you know, it's like the customers don't know that. And the customers really, in many instances, both the prototypes and the low volume, unless you've got a sophisticated buyer, they don't actually know what the price should be because a lot of them don't have the background or the number of years in the field to know what a machine part should cost, whether it's easy, medium, complex. So keep keep that in your back pocket as well. Don't have the fear in it makes it a little easier, but I'm going to add one thing, which I don't know if you guys are doing or not. I think a top level lever should always be a multiplier on your final price. And that's something I think you should look at every day if you're doing enough quotes in your shop and that you, you can adjust it. You probably don't want to adjust it every day, but you should be looking at it every day and thinking, do I need to raise my multiplier to slow down my win rate, you know, to if you want to still win that 30%, but if you're winning 40%, you probably need to raise prices to get it back down to 30%. That's your throttle. And do you have a global multiplier on your prices that you, that sort of is in the background that you, you never see? Yeah, we do. I mean, you know, traditionally that's generally been a, you know, in between a 40 and 50% gross margin. So do you you look at it as a gross margin? We do. 
Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's the way. I, that's just the way. So, I'm so what I'm what I'm talking about is you say your standard price for this machine part is hundred dollars. We'd be happy making a hundred dollars for this part, and you have a multiplier that the last thing that the pricing engine does is it takes that multiplier by that hundred dollars and so you're busy you say our multiplier is or adder is 10 percent and you have a field that you literally you know says 10 percent and you can go and make it 11 percent you can make it five percent you can make it negative three percent that's what i'm talking about we do not no i don't think is that Je right. jeff tell tell them how we can implement that <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, you guys are probably thinking of the gross margin or markup percent that you apply at like the bottom of the quote, and that's kind of your global lever. I think what Jay's talking about and, and actually what's more effective is like keeping that lever independent of your cost and price and your actual quote. So literally behind the scenes, you know, you, you have to work out a cost and then you have to apply a markup to come to price, right? So we're talking about a, a lever or a multiplier on your costs, and you're still going to apply your 40%, you know, gross margin, but that's going to be on top of a multiplied price that you're using, you know, as a supply and demand lever. Cool. I, I think about gas prices when Jay talks about this, you know, they got more gas, price goes down, uh, you know, they, they don't have a lot of gas, the price goes up. So yeah. when, you, you know, you have a lot of cars in line, you can raise the price and some of them will go away. Yes. And vice versa, when no one's showing up to get gas, you can drop the price and, you know, you're, you're doing it without really affecting like how you quote and how you think about cost and price. You're doing this really behind the scenes, uh, simply based on what your win rate is. Yeah. We would like to implement that. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly those types of levers that, well, that we've seen you talk about where, you know, it's easy to tweet quote by quote without doing ancillary math or whatever it is. That would be. And, and I would say, think about this right now, you're small, but at some point you'll have an estimator who is not an owner. And do you really want them to see and be manipulating gross margins, net profit, things like that? Think about how you set up your pricing engine now. And then what I'm talking about that global last lever is that's an admin tool. That's like, Jason, you own that. And every day you're looking at it and you're tweaking that. And nobody knows that the final price should actually be a hundred dollars if you hadn't tweaked that. Uh, got it's, it. it's not visible at all to the estimators. This is yeah. an admin only tool. The estimator uh -huh. still, you know, plugging in 60 minutes for yep. setup and, and, and seven minutes for runtime, but that lever is interacting with the resulting cost of you know your rate times that amount of time in the in the background and you know your your prices instead of being one it's 1.1 and that all happens behind the scenes you still have a 40 percent margin we're not showing you know the estimator thinking in terms of let's mark this one up 10 percent more 20 percent more and you uh, still so and you still want to i think give the estimator the ability to do that because an estimator who has the experience or knows that this customer will pay more, whatever you want to give them that flexibility, but you also in the background, you as the, the owner are making sure that you're throttling demand or you're using that lever to work to that ideal win rate. Okay. And taking it a layer deeper and circling back to what sort of you said at the start of this call, being that your goal is to sort of Apply, you know, apply markups in a more flexible means. And instead of having like one umbrella markup or margin, you want to get creative with how you're doing that and mark, you know, the right things up the right way and mark things up that don't need to be marked up as much, perhaps, you know, do the opposite there. If you're starting to do all of that, then at, at the end of that, for each of these different markup paths, if you will, like, how are you going to take that you know, we're 10% too busy today and, and dial it down so that you're 10% less likely to win. So once you start to get more complex with how you're jumping from cost to price, that lever becomes even more useful. Like, and, and you're right, you do have it today with your gross margin, but that's because you're applying a blanket margin to all your work. So it, it makes it easy to say, oh, we can just bump that up 10% today or take it down 10%. But if you're gonna go and do this in a little bit more of a complex means, 
then that lever will sort of be your fail safe or your tool that you rely on to make those adjustments on a day-to-day. -day. I see. And Jeff, to be able to strategically mark up, you know, what we want to in different areas, like let's take material costs, for example, that we want to, you know, pass that through at like a, you know, 10% markup or something instead of the 40% or 45% margin. Right now we're just adding the, we're calculating it ourselves, like with a calculator and adding it in on the total price. So it's not really well documented because we don't know how to maybe set that up in, in paperless, but is that something that we can have levers where we can adjust the rate that we're, you know, passing through those different things on paperless parts? That's exactly it. So when I think about all of the like drivers, I guess, of markup, or at least the ones that jump out the most, it's probably going to be what manufacturing process is this? What's the material type? What's the volume? And how soon does the customer want or need it? And then there's other factors like who is the buyer? You know, is it an OEM or is it, you know, an engineer that needs to iterate through a design over the next couple of months? And that's going to affect, you know, how susceptible they are to price or how price conscious they are. So but with that aside, when you're strictly looking at the print, looking at the part, looking at the RFQ, it really comes down to process, material, the quantity, and you know how soon they need it. All of those things, all of those concepts, you can now kind of interact with from a formula perspective when working with markup. So the, the four most basic things and what we make really clear on the quote now and the features that we're going to work together to get turned on for you guys are we break out the different costing categories. So I guess the first main change is we're now real aware of what is cost on a quote and how we took that cost and came to a final price. So it's, it's cost first price. And we break your costs down into four key categories, material. And you can see these categories today if you pull up a quote in your paperless parts instance, but now we're making it real clear and real easy to interact with each category, but it's material, inside costs, so operations that you're performing in-house, and then outside costs, anything, you know, any services, outside operations that you're throwing on your quote, and those get flagged today from blue O, you know, when you're working in paperless. And then the last one is purchase components. So if you're working with an assembly or you need to add hardware to a part, whatever it might be, those are four different categories of costs. And then you can now interact with the sum of those costs, use you know, quantity, use process, use material type in a formula to say, I want to mark up each of those four categories this way under these conditions. Okay. So the basic way is if the quantity is between zero and 10, let's apply a 60% margin. If the quantity is between you know, 10 and 100, let's go down to 50%, so on and so forth. I think we said this in a last call, but I had a customer that literally made a floor price for every quantity mm. from one to 25. He said, I don't even care what the part is. I won't make one part for less than this a unit. I won't make two parts for less than this a unit. And now that is baked into his markup formula. So it's going to look, sum up the cost and basically say, if it didn't get to this cost, apply this more percent markup. So I get to that floor cost. And that that's simple math. It's like what the cost was divided by the floor cost and then take that and tack it onto what the cost was. Okay. And that all happens over every quantity break on every quote item that he sends out the door and he, he doesn't think twice about it, or it's not even him, it's his team that doesn't have to think twice about it. Okay, sure. Thank you. Um, that's interesting. You said something that I want to hone in on. You were getting out your calculator. If you ever get out your calculator, I want you to think, how could this be done in the pricing engine, you should never have to get out your calculator or an Excel spreadsheet. If you're listening to this, same thing. We want to get rid of calculators and spreadsheets. Anything you're doing there, I think we can implement in the pricing engine. Yeah, great. Okay. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've seen it on the demos you guys have had with the colors of money, and I can't remember all the categories, but some screenshots of it. And yeah, I mean, that looks like exactly. But but I don't know what else you might have a, a calculator out for, but what the pricing engine is, is math, applied math. So <laughs> we, we can do it for you. If you're taking out that calculator more than once, then let's figure out how to put it into the software. Great. great. That's great.
Thank you, Jerry. An example of that, taking it a layer deeper, like we even have customers that maintain a table of all their you know, top priority accounts. And then there's an operation step in their pricing category that says, you know, go to the table, find the account name, look next to it and tack on that incremental percentage. So, you know, if, it, if it's a big you know, supplier, maybe they're not tacking on a percentage, but if it's someone that they don't like to work with, maybe they're tacking on an extra 6% just on top of whatever. And you can do that at a customer level and a contact level or both. Wow. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, we have had that, that issue already where you've got the particular contact and otherwise delightful company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but this is what's beautiful. And once you code it once, then it's always there and you can forget about it and move on to the next, because there's always something in the shop. You're like, shit, we didn't see that coming and that cost us money. Then you just code that in. And if you do this for years, your pricing engine, your pricing system becomes so bulletproof then you can bring in less experienced people to quote because you put these guardrails in place. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. fantastic. I mean, that's something we definitely worry about as our business evolves and grows. So. Every, every shop does. And that's why you have a lot of times the most experienced people in the shop outside of the owner doing your estimating because they've gotten burnt the most times. So they will catch the things that will burn you in the future. Yeah. Yeah. But they're also not making those complex parts, right? When you can get that $900 an hour and, and, you know, they typically tend to be older and they won't be with you forever. They're going to retire and enjoy fishing or whatever, whatever else they want to do. And it's not driving into the shop every day. Sure, sure. Jay, did you have a, as Jason mentioned, for some of our mentors, like in the industry, we've, we just, you know, heard that that, you know, 30% win rate is something they had like strived for on quotes overall. And maybe it's more broken down the specific categories for you, but did you. You're asking, is that a good number? Yeah. 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 So it, it depends is the answer. If you have enough quotes coming in, then probably a 25 to 30 to 35% win rate is a good number. If you don't have a lot of quotes coming in, you got to win a lot more, right? Yeah. And typically that means you're not going to get the margin that you want. On the flip side, if you have a lot of quotes coming in and you're fast at getting them out, you're doing a lot of sales and marketing. If you had a 10% win rate, that would be fine because you you gotta you, you have to match your win rate to your capacity. Okay. So and and capacity is how many hours in your shop. So the the hours that you win, but think about it's also the hours that you quote. And if you are getting tons of quotes in, then and you you know you you can do a thousand hours in your shop a month, but you're getting in 10,000 hours of quotes. You better win 10%. Or you're going to blow the system up. Yeah. But if you're only getting in, if you're getting in 3000 hours, that's roughly the 33% win rate. So that, that's why all these analytic tools with paperless are really good and why you want to keep your hours pure and never touch the hours to manipulate a price. Then you can understand these these characteristics of how your sales and marketing efforts are affecting the quoted hours and the capacity of the shop. Okay. I also wanted to throw one thing out there is that in terms of quote response time, the category one, the easy parts, it is advantageous to quote those as fast as possible because there's a lot of competition on those and you want to win those. And the, tendency of a buyer is to get stuff off their desk. And if your price looks reasonable, they'll go with the first quote returned often and place an order. I remember we would, it was regularly told to us that we ship parts and they were received by a customer before they got quotes back on parts sometimes. Um, And that's the extreme case, but that's what you're up against. And we proved it 
we saw the trends. The faster you quote a job, the higher the win rate. So particularly those easy parts that you want to win and give to anybody in your shop, prioritizing those over complex parts is going to result in winning more of those parts. On the flip side, complex parts you really do want to spend a little more time on. Think about it. What Did I see all the gotchas? And people aren't going to return the quotes as fast on those. Or if they do, it's probably going to either be a really low or really crazy price. And somebody's not going to pull the, tr well, they're going to pull the trigger if it's a really low price, but they'll wait if the prices are coming back, they're just super high. So you have a little more time on the complex parts. Okay. We've been trying to stick to 24 hour turnaround time on quotes, just, you know, obviously given the nature of the market we're trying to address. And, you know, I would say that that's definitely happened where we've had just urgency to get it back within that 24 hour window, just kind of our service level agreement with the customer, provided there's no questions or they haven't equipped us with enough information. Mm -hmm. uh, but that has come back to bite us when, you know, there's a few gotchas and you're going and looking at the part again and looking if you need to order tooling, you're like, oh God, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't account for tooling costs, you know, correctly there or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Give yourself permission to take your time on parts that you know are more complex. And Jeff, I think it's as easy as when you are loading a part into the system, you can have a pull down menu and have pick one, two, or three, or some text, however you want to describe them. A hundred percent. And just backtrack into what we were just talking about and, and just spitballing here and why it's so important to categorize parts is like, what if you kind of change your motion in terms of how quick you want to turn quotes around and said, you know, for these high complexity or perhaps less desirable jobs, we're going to say, we're going to get back to those at, you know, next day latest, but for these easy complexity RFQs, we're going to get back to them in 12 hours. Mm -hmm. and in two days, you're going to get the same amount of quotes done, but you're prioritizing what's best for you. And at the same time, as Jay just said, the time to turn around the quote is more of a factor on what you're prioritizing. So it's kind of killing two birds with one stone in that sense. To answer your question, Jay, yeah, it's really easy to make a drop down or pick list and say, you know, this is easy, medium, hard, or less desirable, desirable, and more desirable, whatever the categories might be. Mm -hmm. But we also have ways that we can help make that assessment and customers are employing those today. And you know, if the part's a certain size, maybe by default, it's going to be a minimum of, of a level two part. Maybe yes. if titanium, it's guaranteed that it's a three. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe if we identify a certain number of features or unique features, and we don't have to think just about machining, but sheet metal, you identify, you know, 12 bends with six different radii, that's probably going to be a difficult job to get done. So these are like types of rules you can employ to classify parts, you know, automatically. And that way you're not using your judgment. It's very set in stone. And once you collect a lot of data on that, then you can go back and, and reassess what a, a level one is, what a level two is, what a level three is, and what that means for like your markup or your price. Okay. I, I also want to, I, I, I see you got another question, but I want to throw something else out. That's not specifically Azure pricing, but if you have a new customer or could be an old customer and they send you a complex part that's going to take more hours to quote don't feel that that you have any obligation to quote that part without a conversation first and what i mean by that is particularly if it's a new customer it's so easy to attach a file to an email and send it out to 10 shops so when i think of a complex part, I want to understand the parameters of that. Are there any things that you can concede on tolerances or whatever? How are you going to make your buying decision? What is your expectation on delivery? Try to engage the customer. And if they won't make a commitment to have a conversation with you about it, why do you feel obliged to have a commitment to return a quote? A very good point. So did you actually like just... I mean, not quote or just say, oh, we're not, we, I'm sorry, we can't quote this. 
for for certain parts. I mean, well, I mean, not, well, not, well, not yeah, yeah. We had a standard no quote language. We would tell people why we weren't quoting parts, and I gave the estimators permission to be okay with not quoting parts as long as they responded as a no quote within a reasonable time frame and told the customer why. I viewed it as a sales opportunity because that's why you want to have the conversation and you might say, well, this part isn't a good fit for my shop, but these are the parts we like to do and we would welcome. Do you have any of those? And so it's a sales opportunity, but if a customer won't make a commitment to you, why do you feel a commitment to them? Yeah, exactly. I guess I guess that was more what I was asking for a customer like that, or if you have someone who isn't you know communicating with you well, but you can do the part, but you're not able to establish like you know you said why should we feel like having a commitment to them? Does that mean that you don't just don't quote the part and leave them hanging, or or do they well, no, I I would send back a response, of, Brian be happy to quote these parts for you, but we need more information and haven't been able to reach you. Please contact me at your earliest convenience. Otherwise, we respectfully, I always put this, I always said, we respectfully no quote your parts. Okay. Yeah. I think they, uh, yeah, I think Rival Lab still does that. Taking yeah. it, 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 but it's, again, it's so easy to send out an RFQ and it may involve hours on your side and and you may it may take you a day or two to get back to them and they may have already placed the order so you're putting all this effort in and it's wasted so easy stuff you bang it out you get it out there but i always wanted to set myself up for the best chance of winning a part and time is your most valuable resource right yeah protect your time spend your time on the things that will make you money that have a high probability of a win rate and don't look at a request as a obligation okay. because that that's your time is it better spent somewhere else yeah understood did you jay uh, i'm not sure how much maybe detail you could share about this either but did you have a strategy or, or i guess what was your i'm sure you had a strategy of maybe can you share any details about your strategy for pricing of tooling on machine parts and also in terms of like materials, like we, we break it down into, you know, plastic, soft metals, hard metals and have a different rate for it. But did you have, I mean, can you share anything about the strategy you used for that or like the differences, maybe percentage differences, maybe in pricing that you use for various materials or so forth for tooling? I'll speak in generalities and specifically, I don't remember what the percentages we would have added. And part of it is, and you hit upon it, the life of a cutting tool in stainless is different than that in aluminum. So the markup for stainless, there's factors beyond the fact that it's stainless and it cuts slower. There's perhaps a level of machinist, the amount of deburring time, the cost of cutting tools for that versus aluminum. So you can work into a percentage markup that for your shop will fairly compensate you for doing stainless over aluminum. But keep in mind as part of that, that it's beyond the, a slower cutting speed. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Lots unpacked on this conversation. Any other urgent questions, Jason or Brian? Yeah, I would say one other. We offer expedite options for everything we do. You know, we'll have a standard lead time and one day beyond that's 25%, two days is 50%, three days is 100%. We took that from you. And so we're having more people as we've lowered prices go all the way to 100%. Like we've got a couple of jobs going through this week and, you know, I think one of them's at risk at, of not getting out and they've paid a bunch in expediting fees. So we've been up, you know, up front with the customer. So material shortage issue. And then we broke two taps on large piece of plate and, you know, just one of those jobs. And so, you know, our thought process is, okay, if we miss by a day, then we're going to refund them the difference between the 50 and hundred percent markup. If we miss by two days, it's that, you know, obviously it's just a terrible situation all the way around. Mm -hmm. uh, 
so how did how did you manage that when you let a customer down and you're asking for you know, quite a bit of money? Well, you know? I think the approach you're taking is the right approach and the honorable approach. And I think it will be well received by your customers in that they they're paying you 100% because they really do need the parts and there's a value there. However, they don't have to ask. And that's important, I think, to not have them ask, have you proactively say, we didn't meet your expectations, we're not going to charge you the expedite fee that that you were willing to pay because we didn't deliver. It, It also, though, again, protecting you and the shop this gets into, it sounds like one of the parts was maybe at least a medium complexity part, if not a high complexity part. And lead times, we talk a lot about pricing in being able to program pricing, as Jeff has jumped into here and some stuff. Lead times can be developed as well and should be, in my opinion. So if you you may have a spitball in a, a week turnaround for easy parts. Maybe it's two weeks for medium complexity parts and four weeks for complex parts. Mm-hmm. So you, and then, but maybe it's a, maybe it's a medium part, but it's stainless steel and you want to add a day on because it's stainless. Maybe it's a plate where you need to buy mic six as opposed to being able to to mill it down. And so you can use all the parameters that you're already collecting for your pricing, then use them to tweak the lead time as well. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's incredibly powerful and it's, it's realistic, it's fair and protects the shop so that you have the extra time if something goes wrong. Because something, you you never know which jobs it's going to happen on, but something's always going to go wrong at some point and you've got to recover. For example, if you are committing to seven business days for a turnaround on a part, I think you should be able to make the part in five business days without any sweat and that gives you two days to recover or something goes wrong. That's how I look at lead times. And if you've got plating, I think you should add two business days if you've got a finishing operation on a part. Even if it only takes one day, give you two days for the buffer because platers are notorious for taking that extra day when, when you don't want them to. So think of lead times in the sense of being manipulated. And, and maybe they still would have paid 100%, but it would have bought you two more days and would have made life easier in your shop. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's Um, why it's so important to try to take a formulaic approach with, with every aspect of what you're doing when it comes to an estimate. I think, you know, Jay, you just mentioned protecting your shop and earlier at the start of the call, you said, you know, spiraling in. So Mm -hmm. constantly move closer and closer to that perfect zone, but you'll never reach it. Like you said, because you can always zoom in. Mm-hmm. So to me, like the failure that occurred or you know not meeting that customer's expectations sounds like an opportunity to like spiral in. So you figure out why, you know, why didn't we turn the part around in time? What were the characteristics of it? Was it the material type? Was it, you know, was it a feature on the part? It sounds like it was just a material shortage, you know, maybe not much you could have done about that, but just getting out ahead of it next time you have a similar situation and you know, having a formulaic approach allows you to layer that in. I, I used to use a phrase, I'd tell the customer, you go, well, if the stars align, we can do that for you. I said, but <laughs> I don't, I'm not, I'm not confident the stars are always going to align. So I've got to give myself a little buffer and I would rather, and, and this is, I had this conversation so many times, I, I can say it so easily now. I'd rather tell you seven business days and ship in five and be a hero then tell you five business days and come back to you and tell you something happened. The stars didn't align <laughs> and ship in seven business days and look like a schmuck. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's managing expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I did have one more question, but I really want to be mindful of your times, Jay and Jeff, so I can. Well, let's, let's, we'll do a rapid response. 
Okay. Okay. Just real quickly, I just, this is a little bit, you know, off topic slightly, but we've been trying, obviously our, you know, preferred customer is an engineer with a credit card. We love that. But at the same time, we get a lot of requests for terms and, and we haven't really known exactly the best way to handle it, but we decided to do like, Hey, at least on the first order, you know, 50% down and the rest, maybe net 30 or something. But we've just had some issues getting like, you know, paid on time sometimes and so forth. And and I know that Jay, nice. I believe, you know, you shared before that, you know, you prefer the credit card purchases rate, you know, from an engineer or something. But did you do anything specifically to manage that or encourage credit card purchases? Or did you set specific terms that you would hold people to and down payment or something like that to, to mitigate risk? So I'm going to throw this out to the listeners. I would love feedback because this is something I brought up to some folks at Paperless as a opportunity for us or even someone else out there. At Rapid, our volume was enough that we created a tool for instant credit checks. And it wasn't perfect, but but we gave us a high degree of confidence and we had a really low level of bad debt. So if someone applied for terms, we were able to say yes or no pretty quickly. And for a small shop, even for medium shops, and probably even for our enterprise customers, that scope is beyond their ability. So it sounds like there's a need for that for you. That said, you really can get burnt on terms. And if they're not a publicly traded company, I figure publicly traded companies, I'd always get paid sooner or later. You know, I did get burnt when when uh, when public company went bankrupt but the credit card is is a great way to to start and it, it's up to you. you you'll probably have to get burnt a couple times on terms to to come up with your fast and hard guidelines i will say though with credit cards you always want to run the credit card ahead of time when the order's placed and let them know there'll be a separate charge for shipping because this is what i learned is there were so many times when somebody's card wouldn't run and you've got parts made and they weren't a good credit risk, so, you know, that you're willing to give them terms and now you can't even charge them a credit card. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So charge the card when you get the order. Tell them you're going to do that. And and then you, you're going to see a second charge for shipping. Did yeah. you ask for down payment from first time customers? Um, down, no, down payments are really hard. Maybe if it's a smaller company, you can do that. But just credit cards are so easy. Yeah. Got it. All right, guys, this was a lot of fun. Great questions. I love the success you're having. And I'll throw out to the listeners, if you are like Brian and Jason, and you are thinking about how you want to implement your pricing strategies, how to cover costs, how to incorporate your costs into the quote, and then think about, okay, I got that covered. What are the pricing aspects? How do I maximize my profit and not leave money on the table without losing too many jobs? So Jeff and I love to answer these questions. Jeff, actually has the pleasure of working with you if you are a paperless parts customer of implementing some of these strategies as I know he's doing here with Brian and Jason. And I think this is so much fun. This is how you take the stress out of your life as a shop owner, because your pricing just works. You know, you're giving yourself the right margin for the right types of parts. And if you go so far as the lead time aspect, even giving yourself enough time to make the parts or recover if something happens. So Thanks, guys, for being on. Jeff, thanks, as always, for being my partner here. Thank you so much, Jay and Jeff. Yeah, thank you, guys. We just Very really, appreciate, really appreciate all your sage advice and what you're doing for you know, helping manufacturers in the U.S. like us become more competitive. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I couldn't thank you guys more. Without you guys, there's nothing to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> it's real easy. I think we owe it to you. And I'm really looking forward to our follow-up call when we're actually going to dive into the platform, take a look at you know how you're doing it today and come up with a strategy to, to employ for the future. And hopefully as a result of that, you know, we can come back on and, and talk about how that played out uh, in the yeah. future. Absolutely. would be more than happy to. And just always, always grateful to you very much in paperless parts, Jay Jacobs and Jeff. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. Well, listeners, until next time, keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting.
Have a fantastic day. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to The Job Shop Show.